I'm Ed Nersesian, director of the center. Uh, before I uh, introduce the participants of today's roundtable, I have two brief announcements. One is that the next program on the beauty and unity of mathematics is on uh, December 1. And then on December 15, it's a program on animal consciousness. And then other programs you will see if you go to the website. Uh, I will make a very brief introduction of the participants today. If you want more information on them, you go to our website. There's a detailed bio there. Michael First, who is sitting right there, is professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University. Laura Hirschbein is professor of psychiatry at University of Michigan. Francis Lee is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry of Cornell Medical, Cornell Medicine. Robert Michaels is the Walsh McDermott University Professor of Medicine and Psychiatry at Weill Cornell. And Miklos Todt is the Walsh McDermott, is the Neuroscientist Professor of Pharmacology at Weill Cornell. So as you know, the format is a spontaneous conversation amongst the participants. Thank you. Well, we, we were just talking a, a minute ago before everybody started about the fact that I, I'm a historian and, and I'm all, you know the only woman and the only non-New Yorker, so I guess I have a, a perspective. But we were talking about wondering whether the history should start first if we're looking to, to the future. But the problem with starting in the past is if you're imagining a narrative, do we want... The, the way people tend to use history is to tell the story about the present are we, are we talking about the past as the, the battle days that are leading to the future with new discoveries, new, new advances, new neuroscience, new whatever? Or are we going to use the past to tell a story of decline, that we've lost track of the things that we used to do that we used to do well, and now we're, um, back, we're in soulless territory of just symptom counting with do. <laughs> appreciation to DSM. So, you know, you can use the, use the history to... to to tell the story of decline, the story of progress, or as I tend to see it, the story of things that continue, the themes that come up over and over and over and over and over again. Um, the, uh, the, the things that we keep, that we discover and rediscover, we discover brains, we discover symptoms, we discover statistics. I'm reading a great book on the history of statistics now that, that points out that we were doing, that we psychiatrists were doing statistical counting in the 17th century. Um, and so the idea of counting and looking at numbers is not new. We humans like to do that. <laughs> the first step of trying to understand things is to put some order. Put some order in, in things. And hopefully, patterns will emerge and we'll have understanding. So that's been going on for a very long time, and that continues to be. Uh, used to be the main. Well, yeah, everybody wonders in the. DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. What was the statistical part? And that was because it originally was used for collecting statistics in mental hospitals. And nowadays, I guess you could argue the coding allows people to collect statistics, but that's it's really a, the only reason they keep the S is for historical reasons. It's a well-known document, but it's really not statistical anymore. But you're right, it's the idea of starting out by, I mean, the DSM, unfortunately, remains a descriptive observational system with almost no depth to it at all. And uh, people have criticized it for that 
reason, which is certainly a valid criticism, but it remains useful because there's no alternative. That's always the thing. When somebody trashes the DSM, it's, well, okay, so what do you want to replace it with? And usually you don't get much uh, response. So it, it, it's incredibly limited, but it continues uh, despite all of the advances in neuroscience and, and, what, and everything else. It continues to have value as an organizing principle. But it's still very limited. I'm, I'm looking at everything from the uh, basic science point of view. I have to just a disclaimer. But uh, <clears throat> I remember that uh, one of the attractions of this field is that this new genes came out and everybody believed that after a while we will be able to explain some of the symptoms and maybe actually we can define a certain disease based on diseases, uh, disease genes. And uh, historically now, we know that it's actually absolutely not the case. If anything, it's even more complicated. Mm -hmm. So I've been struggling with this uh, in my own lab and in the university, that how actually to, to solve that problem. And we can discuss it later, but, but uh, obviously we have to move out from the single gene and even multiple gene, because we have to understand how the uh, environment is really impinging on this whole gene network. And we will have time, maybe discuss about that. I think still the genome is a culprit and the genome can, or epigenome rather, can explain a lot of things. Um, so historically, I think we really moved a lot from uh, genes and now we have the epigenome. And uh, hopefully we'll have some chance to get a little bit deeper into this how, because that's still, we are, we are in a very same situation. We have an epigenome now, but like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that we have a lot of things, but we don't understand how they work together, how they interact. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a little bit more better situation now. We have more players. So it's almost like we need another level of understanding. I, I think we do know more. I'm, I'm also a neuroscientist. And I was just at a symposium at Cornell and yesterday. And what was absolutely clear was um, is that we are not actually much closer to understanding pathophysiology of psychiatric disorders, despite the hundreds of genes that have now been found. The best example I, I was at this meeting was, was that the success story now, the best success story in psychiatry is autism. Um, 99 genes will now have met genome-wide significance with very penetrant, high effect sizes. They account for 1% or less than 1% of all autism. In, in this population. And, but it's, it, it, each of these papers is a nature paper. So this is considered the best advance of, that we can do at this point. And it's absolutely not clear how to move forward. And I think this is something that I struggle with also. This is, it suggests that, um, that the hope, as Miklos said, was that 20 years ago or 30 years ago was just like in pulmonology or nephrology, we could just get a bunch of genes and then be able to, or cancer, and then be able to, to move forward. And what's clear is that this is not a linear path, that, there, that the brain is probably more complicated. There's some number like 150,000 or 150 trillion synapses. <laughs> yeah, this is just us, for us to be able to think that a single gene or Hundred genes could help explaining you know, this is going to be difficult. You know, so it was a very sobering meeting I went to. Basically, I think it's the situation is like 15 years ago huh? in the uh, when Facebook was or Amazon started. Yeah. So basically, the idea 
if you think about it, is that you get all of this information. They collect information, personal information. And 15 years ago, they just started. Now they have a tremendous uh, amount of information. And that, for each of us. Now they, they have algorithms where they can actually uh, figure out what next your next move is and maybe send you an uh, advertisement and we want to sell you some uh, uh, pet food or something because you know that you have a pet at home so, yeah. and more complex. So I was, I was thinking maybe that kind of strategy, because we have now genes, epigenomes, and a lot of that low size, right? Yeah. We have thousands of this. So how to put together all of individual players as they would pull out the society to a comprehensive understanding of how the society works and how the brain works. But I was uh, just thinking the other day about this, but it's still probably it's not the right template because it's a very uh, two-dimensional what they do. They just collect and they can interpret. But our problem is that we have multi-dimensional. We have genes, then we have synapses, connectivity, then we have circuit functions, and then we have this behavior, which is very elusive, right? But most people work <clears throat> at that level. <clears throat> so I think it has to be something where you could integrate these data sets, like you had the Facebook interface, but yeah, sets, but you would be able to actually, in a 3D almost uh, fashion, to integrate all of this information to a comprehensive understanding of the brain. I have no idea what basically I'm talking about here, but I'm just <laughs> basically I'm saying that it's just something which will be the next. Uh, most of the time, in research, you don't really know what is the next big step, but if something has to be way beyond of this two-dimensional understanding what we have now, and probably nobody knows this. It was just somebody will come up. So that's why I think it's a good idea to, to invest. NIH and IMH puts a lot of money in these things. They have competition people now. Artificial intelligence, intelligence comes in. So maybe something is coming out, uh, and, but we don't know what it is. And unfortunately, we will not be able to, <laughs> to answer the future of psychiatry, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we just have to uh, put money and then waiting for the uh, internet as a concept to coming out from this. And I don't see it yet. I'm not for the major conditions, let's say uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, for example. Is the, uh, are the studies focused on finding out what causes the condition? Or are the studies also focused on dissecting it into the symptoms and trying to figure out what causes each symptom? I think at this point, the main, at least from what I can get, the main thrust of where the money is going is collecting as many samples as possible to get hundreds of thousands of, of, of samples of biological samples from mainly DNA and other and to try to do large statistical analysis of essentially a genome-wide association study. And, and they've succeeded in finding now over 200 schizophrenia genes, accounting again for low percentages of the risk, like 0.5% of the risks for schizophrenia. They just completed in England a study where they took 100,000 people with depression, and they were able to find 50 genes that look like they might be affected. Fifteen? Five zero. Fifty. Again, small. low effect sizes for each of these. Though, but it's essentially, this is where the efforts are to, again, it's sort of, this is sort of like counting. It's sort of like they just want to accumulate as many uh, 
potential genes that might be a risk gene at this point. And these are still early days, yeah, I would say. Yeah. But 20 years ago, there, was, there were none. So, so yeah. if you divide by zero, this is infinitely better. <laughs> well, if you say 50 genes are responsible for the depression, then what? Uh, but they account for so little of the risk, so it's sort of like it's a small effect size. So that there is a the best as an example is they, one of the genes is a glutamate receptor, which makes somewhat sense. Glutamate receptors are everywhere now. So, but the problem with this one glutamate receptor they found is is that it's everywhere. So how you're going to actually target a drug, you know, to or something like that is going to be very difficult. Drug companies have been targeting this class of receptors already, so in many ways we know this. Then we're sort of stuck then with then again the complexity of the nervous system and the brain, and that you know even though we have a, a one hit that makes some sense, it's still very hard to move forward. You know, it's interesting thinking about all of this data because, again, this brings me back to this book I'm reading on the history of statistics and statistics and psychiatry in particular, where they were drowning in data in the 19th century. You know, one of the one of uh, Emil Kropelin's arguments was that he was spending all of his time with data. He had so much data he didn't know what to do with it. And obviously, we have a better capacity for managing data. But the thing that came after all of this data gathering in the in the early 20th century was Freud and psychoanalysis that said, okay. We're not going to talk about these big groups. We're going to talk about one person. And we're going to talk about how what makes up this one person and how this one person's inner conflicts manifested in these symptoms or these experiences. And so I'm, I'm wondering if the future may be if somebody gets to the point where we have all this data and, it, and it's, it's little pixels and it's everywhere and it doesn't cohere to a particular picture, that we're going to have another wave of people saying, no, actually what we need are individuals, individual relationships you know, we're we are we're all we're spending all of our time bumping into people as we're looking on our on our phones, not engaging with people. Are we going to have a backlash where and maybe psychiatrists will lead, maybe we'll follow to say, no, actually, what we need to do is work on interpersonal interactions and that one patient again, and and go back in a different way. I don't know. Have we stopped doing that now? Uh, according to some of our patients, we have. <laughs> I think it's really. They are not exclusive, and, and they, absolutely, they, you have to just do both. Uh, we do certainly the large data, but in the clinics you do certainly the uh, individual. But the, our our goal is really to understand the basic framework of a disease rather than an individual, and maybe how an individual can end up with uh, a disease phenotype from this uh, overall concept. And you are more interested in obviously why this person got that. But it, I think it's just the two sides of the, the same story, and we just have to do both. There's an interesting uh, sort of like similar backlash going right now in this other field of systems neuroscience where people thought that we just need to neuroimage more people, and as they're going through various tasks or even while they're sitting, just to look at their, connect, their brain connectome, um, just as a, to bring everyone up to speed, 20 years ago, it was found that, that the brain actually organizes itself into sort of like hubs within in the brain, and you can actually just get a re what they call a resting state without any task. You can actually t get a scan and actually see these hubs in the brain. And um, this is the work of Marcus Rakel at Washington University. And people 
uh, were fascinated by this, and no one has really been able to sort of understand how is it that you can measure blood flow in the brain and actually see these self-organized networks. And, and so then everyone got excited and just kept on collecting thousands and thousands of scans. So now we have hundreds of thousands of scans within studies. Now at WashU, where Marcus was, uh, is there, they now decided that everyone's network is individualized. Everyone's brain is, that when you average it, you get some average, a brain that looks like no brain on the planet Earth. So now what they're doing is that they're, they're actually taking individuals and actually just scanning them over and over again. For example, during the course of depression or during something so they can scan them at the height of symptom pathology and then at some other point when they're not. So I think this is the goal now, that, that you might want to basically go back to and then learn something from these individuals in a way that had that not that had not been thought of before. I think there's a, there have been some drug studies on that, that this end of one studies where you, you take a single person as the, yes. the study exactly. and, and how the, how they interact with medication. And that's sort of this new thing that's being. Yeah. Cause there's so many individual differences. It's essentially this is that, that you can't, that the principles that even of trying to put together a brain connectome is very difficult, even though NIH is spending lots of money on these connectome projects that ultimately you, it might actually just sort of like, sort of like, if you want to understand fruit, don't, you don't blend it together. <laughs> but I, I believe that response is a little bit simpler because when you ask the question why this drug is actually working in one individual, actually understand the, the pharmacology of that based on an enzyme which is either stronger or weaker in certain individuals, we call it CIP enzymes, but basically they just metabolize the drug. Many times this is uh, crucial, so, and we can even now, a patient can be screened because it's genetically based. One can take a, a sample from blood, and it's every cell is the same, and we can basically uh, figure out whether it's a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer. And maybe that's the reason somebody is actually uh, has side effects or another person does not respond, and it's just a dose relationship. So that, that may be somewhat easier to understand than what the underlying cause, which could be thousands of different right. ways. But I still believe that there's a, still a, something common um, feature or features, but it's, it's a circuitry. I kind of start to believe in circuitry, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's just because it's fashionable. But, but circuitry in animal models, at least we can understand how the circuitry can be linked to a certain behavior. We can modulate the circuitry, we can activate, we can deactivate certain very precise circuitry. Even we can, we can, we can tailor, uh, we call it synaptic transmission in certain areas of the brain, and we, call, we get the response. But of course, after below and, and underneath, there's a lot of genes and synapses and other things we just don't really understand. I want to go back to where we started <laughs> and be a little provocative. Um, to me, psychiatry is defined, like all medical specialties, as uh, everything that's relevant to helping people with a certain kind of problem. And uh, the neuroscience research base that we've been talking about is fascinating, exciting, intriguing, and essentially 
totally irrelevant to helping any living patient. <laughs> it may have some hope for the future, although a possible outcome of the work is that this strategy won't lead to anything helpful for patients, or maybe to some mod modest twists on some of our current drugs. Uh, almost all of our current biologic treatments were discovered by happenstance, not by scientific research. They're serendipitous. Um, if we never spent a penny on any neuroscience basic research over the last hundred years, it would make trivial difference to current psychiatric patients. But we didn't know that. I mean, obviously, no, clearly that's was, the problem. I mean, it the was thought right was that we were going to crack the problem but, by going to a science. But as our that. historian warned us, we have to study the past yeah, right. <laughs> to find out. <laughs> that we won't repeat it. So it wasn't money wasted. It was wasted in the sense it didn't give us what we wanted. But I'm we, not saying we didn't it was wasted, it to yeah, see it. but it led to nothing. Yes, right. Yeah, it was a, a very intelligent uh, gamble that lost. So short-term loss. We don't know about the future. Yeah. Um, I just want that for background, because when we talk about the excitement of contemporary neuroscience research, we're talking about possible hopes for a fairly distant future. We're not talking about anyone who's mentally ill today or anything that might help that person. One of the side effects of the neuroscience thing is I believe it's been partly responsible for uh, uh, lowering the stigma of mental disorders. And it's unfortunate because somehow if it's in the brain, therefore people shouldn't be stigma. I mean, it's, it, the fact that it has helped stigma in a way is sad that it took something like this. But it ha I think it has. People having a brain disease, a calling schizophrenia a brain disease, I mean, all over, and calling substance abuse a brain, if you believe it's a brain disease. But people call it a brain disease partly to try to reduce the stigma. So this angle, to, but to, besides the fact we're trying to look for answers, is actually, I think, had a, an improvement with respect to the, the place of psychiatry and medicine and also the place of patients with mental disorders within the myths of medical but patients. But that's the rhetoric of neuroscience, yes, not exactly. the findings. No, 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 but that's a, that's a, that's a positive event. <coughs> if all this money was well if it, if, it, if it achieved nothing but that, then it would have been well spent, is, my, is what but I'm the, saying. The, pro the downside of that, though, is that the patient's expectations of what oh, we can do for okay, them are sky true. high. You know, that they, they sit there and wait for us to fix their brain disease while they don't want to put any effort no, I have too much serotonin. I read about that. I want right. you to give me a drug to reduce that, and then I'll feel better. Right, right. And, and so the, the expectations are very high. Our drugs are okay. We, our therapies are good, but people have to put yeah. effort into it. Right? So. I think this happened really outside of neuroscience, for example, if it, infectious diseases. Uh, going back hundreds of years and then figure, figured out that if it's a cleaner environment, you probably can avoid something. We didn't know microbiome, microbiome or my, uh, microorganisms. But I think eventually when uh, these bugs were discovered, cloned, the gene structure understood, then we know the target. We, we can design antibiotics more precisely, not just uh, by, by luck. Like not penicillin was certainly luck, but now everything is designed. Or AIDS would have not been uh, treated the way, unless you know we, we had the virus, we had the structure, we had the genome, and actually the, the drugs which are developed that are targeting a particular gene. So I think we are just a few hundred years maybe behind <laughs> in the psychiatry. But basically, uh, history tells me that yes, this is the typical curve. 
their accidental and unfortunate findings, and we use it because that's the only way we have. Maybe they are not even useful to develop further drugs, like in a, in a serotonin blocker, so, so that we couldn't go further beyond that. So we need some other information to build another way. And we are just not there yet, but I think we have to just be patient, and I don't know if we'll be uh, see that in time, but, but it just has to be, this is the normal course, I think, the research and, and medicine. I would, first of all, I, I, as I always say, I agree with you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just that, you, and I think it's sort of, uh, sort of reflected by the fact that the that the Cornell residents, psychiatry residents, really have to know nothing about the brain in order to be an outstanding resident. That the, the training itself does not require us to even know the mechanism of action of any of the drugs that they're given, because we actually don't know, for example, even how lithium. We, we try to teach them during yeah. medical school, which yeah. is not taken very yeah. seriously. <laughs> but what would you say the way forward is if? If instead of putting our X percent GDP into neuroscience research, how would we, how would you construct moving the field of psychiatry, which, as you said, is to help these people that are that are leaving very difficult lives and a large proportion of them, for example, are in prison. So, and how do we help these this, as psychiatrists or psychologists? Okay. Um, an impossibly difficult but very important question. And I'll translate it pragmatically. How should the nation devote its resources for, toward the issues of mental illness? And we're doing it wrong. We're spending too much money in tertiary care for people with serious mental illnesses, not enough money in preventive medicine, even where we know certain things that would make a difference and would work. We certainly would do much more for the next X years, 50, 100, of the population's psychiatric problems if we put more money into early child uh, development, uh, uh, mentoring experiences and a facility uh, than in, um, uh, than in tertiary care strategies for the persistent and chronic mentally ill that are biologic in nature. Um, we know that the pattern of drug use in this country has more to do with physicians needing to placate dissatisfied and angry patients rather than with knowledge about the impact of the drugs on their behavior or their brain. But we know that the uh, skillful physicians know they can, can reduce the patient's dissatisfaction with the treatment by writing a prescription. And the more expensive the medicine, the better the effect. <laughs> and the pharmaceutical industry has figured that out also. And we're we go along with it. But it's very hard to revise the system. So the goal is total public health rather than satisfying individual consumers. And our current health delivery system has as its output satisfying consumers rather than the health of the nation. That's a public health disaster which is supported politically. Um, that's not really psychiatry. 
but it has a lot more to do with mental health in the next hundred years than neuroscience does. The only thing I would say, though, is we've already put an X number of billions or millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in these sort of early intervention studies, public health efforts, such as Head Start. And I've not yet seen any data that that, is it just that we have not put enough? Or is it because it's, it's not clear to me that we're make, we're moving the needle even with the programs we have now? Or is it that, that the needle is just so hard to move? Well, I'm not sure it starts the answer. Francis, but for example, you know the study, I'm sure, better than I do, that the children of depressed mothers who are depressed during pregnancy and in the postpartum period have bad mental health outcomes. We know how to treat depression better than most things we know how to treat, including depressed pregnant women and depressed women postpartum. But we don't deliver that treatment effectively to lots of populations we would have more public health, mental health benefit by organizing a more effective intervention to assure the uh, mental health of pregnant and postpartum women than, um, than almost anything else we get for our dollar in mental health. I'm just... I think the neuroscience is fascinating. I believe we should invest in it. But I think that there's a there's a um, an image problem. I think we sell it with the implication that it's going to make a difference soon. And I don't think that's true. On the other hand, if we tell the truth, we're going to lose resources. So people act rationally. The way you get the largest grant and the greatest uh, congressional appropriation is to suggest not that the connectomes are fascinating, but they may lead to a cure for Alzheimer's disease, possibly Thursday. <laughs> and and, and um, you can't imagine anyone not using that strategy because we do have data that that strategy works. <laughs> Well, the trade-off there is, is that there's a fixed amount of money available for research, and we've seen in NIH the amount of research that's gone into treatment development, it's all got shunted over into this neuroscience thing. So I mean, if we had unlimited money, then we go, oh, I can do some neuroscience, and we can do this, but it doesn't work that way. So part of the, the we are, we are, somebody's getting the money, or certain portions of psychiatry and neuroscience are getting the money, but the patient's... Uh, I think the treatment research is really dried up. I mean, you know, it's a lot of it is going to pharmaceutical, depending on pharmaceutical companies, and they have, unfortunately, their uh, motives aren't always uh, aligned with ours. So it's, it's a real problem. But you're right. This is the way you sell money from the government. But unfortunately, mm. you're, by diluting the government into these promises, uh, we get, don't get good results from the research, and we're really depriving the uh, use of the money elsewhere. Again, I don't know what the solution is, but I think that's a problem with the success of getting money for neuroscience. Well, isn't the hope that the research is going to give you the tools? Oh, no, that's right. But I think, as, as Bob was implying, that's not 
happening. That's well, the, the fact that it's not happening, I mean, Bob said it's not happening soon, but what does that mean? It's not happening tomorrow, it's not happening in 20 years, it's but not maybe, happening in 50 years. Or maybe never is the problem. We don't, as, what, the one thing that's been very clear, as everybody said, the more we study it, the more difficult it gets. And that's the, well, you know, years ago, this neuroscience thing, see, oh, all we have to do is you know, sequence the genome. All we have to do is this. All we have to do is that. And every time we do that, we're just waiting for that one. There's not a single biological test in psychiatry for diagnosis. And we, you know, one thing I remember when I was working with Alan Francis on the DSM-4, we wrote this uh, guidebook. And we put a sentence in the guidebook. It was in the Alzheimer's section. And we were saying that we're very confident in the next five years, by the time this book is out, there's going to be a biological test for Alzheimer's. And boy, was that all. It's still off. Here, 30, 25 years later, and we're still... You, you speak to the Alzheimer's people, they say, oh, but another five year or years to get that right. But there's this elusiveness to actually turning these into... Now, it's not clear what you do about that. You, you don't want to say, well, let's just give up and stop doing it. But there is this problem with putting money in a direction that has proven to be very, very complicated. At what point... Again, if we had a limit of money, I'd say, well, let's keep pursuing that. But it's coming at the cost of resources being spent on research for better delivery, uh, of, of treatment. You, know, you just mentioned the thing about the delivery of the treatment. We do know how to treat depression in pregnant women, uh, but there's a delivery problem. I mean, putting all our money into figuring out how to solve those problems would probably get better short-term results. But those are much harder to sell. This, let's spend money on delivery of care. When I was in medical school in a pathology lab, one of the professors would walk around the lab while we were looking at microscopes of cancer cells, cancer tissue, while he was smoking. <laughs> and so we, 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 as medical students, told him, you know, you are a professor of pathology. We are looking at cancer. There's a connection between lung cancer and smoking. Why are you smoking? He said, cancer is cured in 10 years. <laughs> I'm talking about the 60s. Uh -huh. So, uh, but that doesn't mean that the research in cancer has not borne a lot of yeah. fruit. So that today with immune therapy, targeted therapy, and so on, we are so much further than when I was a medical student. So why wouldn't the same thing happen? Well, Quentin, you're right. That's a, the parallel is there, of course, right? That it's going to be cured in 10 years. They have all over medicine. They've actually made a lot more progress. Like the precision medicine is a good example. That entire field and all of, you know, when you apply that to psychiatry, we are so far away. Whenever precision medicine is discussed, it's always cancer. I mean, that is, has been the area of medicine with I guess you could argue infectious disease has always been precision medicine, but cancer is a great example. And they have made, I mean, you could argue that the, all that amount of money spent on cancer, which has been, by the way, historically much, much more, orders of magnitude more than was spent in, in mental health. But you're right, that's finally beginning to pay off. And part of it, I think, however complicated the cancer story is, it, it is more tractable than I think the psychiatry story because the, of all of the, it's just, it's just so much more complex the brain then I think that we always assume the cancer thing would be that hard because it looks like it should be simple. And that's turned out to be extremely complex. So there's a parallel there. It looks doable, then we see it's not, and you put a lot of money in it, and finally we're getting some results. So that would be the argument. Let's just do it in our field, and the same thing will happen, and it's possible. Uh, but I think the only downside of that is there's a, a limited pie of money and what's not being spent on by pursuing this goal. But just as what Miklos says and what you're saying, it, it probably means that we will probably have to spend as much money as we do in cancer, which is probably 10 times as much as being spent on all brain disorders. So it's not surprising we've not moved right. the needle at this point, That's given true. the fact. And that it, it took cancer 
Maybe a better analogy is to think that we're about 30 years behind cancer. That might be the best way to think about it at this point. You know, and that, but that in order to get to where cancer is, we're going to have to put more money in. And I would, not to be as provocative as Bob, but I would actually say that the money that was spent on sort of fundamental neuroscience or fundamental um, biology is probably the best money spent because we really don't know the brain that well. We think we do. If you think about how, why we move so quickly in terms of, of tackling HIV to a sort of a chronic disease is because of the fundamental biology of understanding how viruses replicate. You know, the, and so just basically emphasizing that neuroscience is not necessarily just linked to psychiatry, but yeah. we have to talk about neurology and many, many other yeah. uh, drug abuse. So basically this money, first of all, is not a big amount from the basic science perspective, to be honest, compared to cancer, is like uh, exactly. peanuts. But, but basically, so this money is really not only understanding disease, but also understanding how the brain functions, which has different implications in the computer science or, or uh, societal problems or behavioral things, which has nothing to do with an exact disease necessarily, mm-hmm. but still how we interact with each other, social behavior, uh, wars and peace, and a lot of implications. Yeah. So I think, um, in fact, a relatively small portion of the so-called basic neuroscience project is spent on directly disease-related, and it's not a lot of money, unfortunately, and there's a lot of competition for this money. Mm-hmm. That's I totally understand that it's not enough. Other field, but I think it's not whether you put left or right the money. It just has to be conceptually different thinking at the governmental level or the, or the city level. So it's just a thinking, but what we, uh, not enough money going there. I, I totally agree, but it's not the problem of the social, uh, the basic science budget because it has to fight for no reason. I pretty much agree with what's been said, but I would add something and, and suggest a possible inference. One is I'm a strong advocate of basic research. Neuroscience is basic research, like molecular biology or genetics. The, the yield on that is greater than any other research we do. But it has woefully little to do with psychiatry. That's all. I'm not arguing it's not interesting, not relevant, not helpful, not practical. It just isn't particularly related to psychiatry. Its major relationship to psychiatry is the rhetoric of social funding. You can't get somebody who's in control of a foundation to give you $100 million for connectome study, but you can for Alzheimer's study. And therefore, it requires someone who knows how to write the paragraph that starts with the statistics about Alzheimer's and ends with some. I just did something terrible. And ends with um, uh, something about connectomes. The other thing is that there is a sort of public image which makes perfect sense that we have these huge problems. We have heart disease, we have cancer, we have mental illness and neurologic diseases. But it doesn't work that way from a biology point of view. The brain is more complicated than the rest of the body put together. The brain diseases are more, 
um, challenging in terms of their understanding and treatment than all the other diseases we ever think of or treat. That there, help me, we have basic scientists in the room, so I want help. About 40% of all the genes go to the brain. How much is it? Expressed? Huh? Probably 60. 60%? 60 no. Oh, that's a measure of something or other. But how they express? Pardon? But how they express? That's the question. Of, of course, that's but just the, the magnitude is relevant yeah. in that we're dealing with what the maker thought was half of his problem. <laughs> and we know that uh, anyone who ever went to medical school knows that you can slice all the other organs and then most biomedical research, when I was uh, involved in laboratory work, started by slicing an organ and putting it in a wearing blender. Mm. But you can't do that with the brain. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't work that way. So the fact that the brain is more than everything else in terms of the complexity of its problem uh, is an important proviso. So certainly we need more basic research. Psychiatry deals with very difficult problems, and I think Francis is optimistic when he says 30 years, that we're about 30 years behind. You said that, didn't yes, you? Yes, uh, Francis and I met 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that may be where he got the number. Uh, I think we have to recognize that there's an order of magnitude difference in the problems we face when we talk about the future of cardiology or oncology or orthopedics or ophthalmology on the one hand and the future of psychiatry on the other. One of the startling things we're going to face in the future of psychiatry is that most of the people we'll be treating 50 years from now, we don't think of as being patients now because we haven't conceptualized how we can make a difference in their lives. But the history of the last 50 years in psychiatry is we move from Ed's two major diseases, schizophrenia and bipolar disease, to recognize the huge pools of people out there who have personality disorders, who have addictions, who have problems in living that were never thought of as medical or psychiatric, but can be helped by interventions even at the crude level we're at now. I don't think we're going to see that growth of patients with cancer or heart disease or any other disease category, but we are with mental health diseases. But if I, if I can just go back to this cancer example, I remember because Memorial Can uh, Sloan Kettering is just next door and mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of collaborations. So they, they were stuck with cancer like 20, 25 years ago. They have been developing new drugs which are a little bit different than the previous one. They certainly got a little increase, but it's not a tremendous movement. And then suddenly there was a paradigm shift with this immune therapy, which was mentioned. And nobody knew that it's coming. Nobody, it just came out from the, uh, from the dark. And then obviously people have been working on it. Yeah. But suddenly there was a critical mass or critical finding, a mass of critical findings, which were translatable to humans. In, in mouse, one could do that well before, but it had to be developed a technology where you could actually use it in humans, and humans will tolerate this. And I think in cancer research will tell you that they are, that was a paradigm shift, because now it's not only personal, but the, the, the cure rate is incredible. It's very expensive, but I think it's just you never know when it happens. It can happen in, in next year, and it can be in 50 years. So 
But we just, I'm just waiting for a, such a paradigm shift, which we don't really know, as they didn't know that this will pan out, because they are trying different things from bone marrow transplantation to different things. But this, for some reason, became practical, feasible in humans, and actually this is... But was it because of a... I don't know it so well, but is it because there were some basic leap made in immunology that made this happen? I, I'm not familiar. Yeah. I'm just yeah. hearing from them yeah. that it was just suddenly a change. Labs yeah. would switch to this kind of strategy. They're yeah. far better. Yeah. And now you have these uh, people who have been uh, not, not responders. They yeah. suddenly, yeah. and they were on that road. Basically, they, they were not, no chance. They just come back. Yeah. I mean, it's a miracle. Yeah. So this is what we would need in psychiatry, that somebody would be treatment-resistant <coughs> treatment uh, uh, schizophrenic, which is a really serious or, or yeah. suicidal. Yeah. And then suddenly you have a treatment which we just cannot even comprehend that today. Maybe we, maybe we but, should all study but why immunology. Maybe we don't believe that. <laughs> Sorry? We should all study immunology at this point. Maybe <laughs> maybe to there are important constraints. For example, what, the reason why they made the Part of the reason why they made the progress on immunology and so on is the ability to study cancer cells. Out it's here. not that easy to study schizophrenia sure. cells. So <laughs> cancer allowed you to study things in a completely different way from different angles. And uh, even now, the treatment comes in from different well, the lack of so, an animal model for schizophrenia. I mean, animal models for cancer have always been around. I mean, exactly. It's a exactly. huge so it's a, barrier. I mean, so theoretically, the if there was an animal, that could be a breakthrough. If some really amazing animal model for some of these illnesses came up, that could be open the door for, for a lot. I, I would say, though, that I think it might have been basic understanding of immunology because yeah. that actually also, now we have drugs for MS, multiple sclerosis, that we didn't have. And they're also in the immunotherapy realm also where they target the T cells. So it turns out even if even neurologists just got lucky that it turns out that these advances, that the drugs that they were making to basically make T cells quiescent are actually very effective for MS. Which would, and, even, and they didn't say, so I think... This will, and it's still a chronic disorder, which was there's, but they had nothing a decade ago. You know, the fact that they have four, two, three to four new drugs in the pipeline is still quite impressive. So I think we we are waiting for that moment also. So, in terms of research, where is the the research in psychiatry in terms of those major illnesses I mentioned? Yeah. Where is that research focused on? <laughs> I think that genetics. Or I would say most of the money right now is in in genetics, connectome. These are the big, like the brain initiative is essentially neuroimaging, yeah. and then there's it's continuing. A lot of money goes off to epigenetic, which is my yeah, epigenetic. My, but epigenetics, I think, just to to mention for the audience yeah. is that basically, once people realize that genes do not solve the problem, and we know that environment cannot work through genes. So the concept came in that environment will actually produce some change in the uh, DNA structure or the DNA function without changing a base pair. So the, the, the sequence is the same, but there are secondary modifications. But if you view it from a functional perspective, it doesn't really matter whether you have a mutation and it alters a gene function, or you have a, we call it chromatin, which is the larger uh, assemble of DNA and the surrounding proteins, you can have the same uh, functional change as a result of. So what we 
many people I know because it's pretty competitive no what is to write a grant, but yeah. basically the, the common theme is that you propose that environment, whether this is early childhood adversity, whether maybe it's a, it's a during pregnancy, maybe the mother is dep- depressed, but there is something memory built in to the uh, child or a fetal DNA, which is again not a change of the sequence, but it's a permanent. So the child will work with, with born with this. It's a regulatory problem, like a mutation would be, and it ending up with a little bit different uh, function at the gene level, which is translated to a circuitry level, and then functional level one, the, the child is an adolescence, typically, when, the, when its connection is made. So I think that a lot, lot of money goes into this, which is fundamentally a very good concept and very new, because we don't really know this. We call this um, areas as uh, environmental sensitive areas, maybe, or we can call them marks, or whatever you want to call but we don't really understand those. But even outside of neuroscience, epigenetics is also... Cancer. Cancer. It's also. actually cancer is a more, more developed phase yeah. again. Yeah. So we learn a lot from cancers. Yeah. But some of the cancer findings cannot be translated exactly. because the genes which are regulated are totally different. In cancer, you would have yeah. uh, that how fast these cells yeah. proliferate or divide, grow. And in neuroscience, more yeah. important how maybe a synaptic function is really tailored. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. And it's, again, it's just a several order of magnitude more complex. That's the problem, the complexity that you pointed out, which means that it takes more time. But just to sort of simplify your work, Miklos, but what you've found in your own lab is that, that the, the, the level of stress of the mother, the grandmother, or the great-grandfather, or whatever, all have impacts on the, yes. on the infant. Right? So we can trace down on the granddaughters, I'm talking about animals here, yeah. but there are some human studies, but the granddaughters will carry the memory of a, a grandparent. Uh, either you can have like a stress uh, infection or even early childhood adversity, which is very relevant to psychiatry. Mm. So, so we can actually tell from the granddaughter DNA that uh, the grandmother had some impact. Exactly. So that would so be very useful impressive. to, let's say you have a child and you are not sure whether the child will be more, you see some sign, maybe I'm, I'm not a clinician, but I can imagine that you have a child and you are not really sure whether uh, the risk uh, is very high or no, but you see some signs, you could go back and then test whether that child actually had some kind of impact through some ancestor's life. And you would say, yes, I see some impact, so I would be more careful and maybe treat that particular individual. And you can actually sample the epigenome not by having to get a brain biopsy, but by... Yeah, we are doing from the blood, actually. So we don't don't have to take (laughs) cure the mouse. So so we we just take a little blood and we can... Because the blood also responds to this, and there is a correlation between the blood response to the brain response. These are not, so it's, I'm talking of memory. The memory in this case, you cannot say this is how precise like an episode would be in our life, or a, or, or a room, or remembering this environment. It's really just uh, the adversity component. It's a negative uh, balance of this whole situation, which is really somehow mm-hmm. alters uh, certain genes, mm-hmm. which will be- So it's like a genetic fingerprint. So, so it's, it's, it's not a memory. We like to use memory because everybody understands memory. But it's a loose memory. So you will not just you will not remember that the adversity occurred in A or B or C environment. 
but you know that was some really bad experience. It's not, not post-traumatic stress disorder where somebody can recall the exact location and going back to the same restaurant or the same battlefield, it, you have a reaction. It is more of a general anxiety that in, in, in general, um, the anxiety level is really high. Almost sometimes you don't even know why because the person doesn't have to have an input. It's already built in the DNA, uh, the chromatin or epigenome, which was somehow predated, maybe not even in, in the individual's life, but in the ancestor's life. So your mechanism is, is beautiful and articulate and very sophisticated, but that, that, that basic understanding that a person is affected by the, the, their ancestry, psychiatrists have been saying for 150 years. So that's not new. <laughs> no, no, um, it's, nothing is new in Right, so, so the thing that, works, well, but the, the thing that worries me, of course, is that exact thinking is what got us to eugenics, this idea that the best thing to do would be just eliminate those genes, eliminate those people, eliminate those races, you know, and with the obvious yeah, sure. uh, conclusions in what happened in Germany. And, and so, if, and the thing is that the, the, the scary part of those kinds of interventions is they, they start off well-intended and in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, you know, these yeah. crazy folks in another but country. Just, so, yeah. um, but, so again, the, the question yes, is, so, so, all right, so you find this, then what? But, yeah, but, but just responding, so what you would say that is known, it was totally uh, anecdotal. There was no scientific evidence for that. And in science, we never believe, so at least in, in, in basic science, we never take it really true until you actually prove mechanistically so our standards are really mechanistically. But for the a, standards of the time, I mean, yes. but they looked at pedigrees, they gathered data, they interviewed families. I mean, for the standards yeah. of the so time, they knew exactly the same thing. Yeah. But yes, so that was certainly a, a, such an association, we call it association. And now, from a scientific point of view, you want to have the association to a causative relationship. Because if this is an association, you cannot do anything about it. Because if two things can be associated, and you influence one thing, it doesn't feel act on other things. But my, my, point, my point is, though, for the standards of the, so the, for the scientific standards of the, of the time 150 years ago, that was truth. Absolutely. That was the, no, the truth. It wasn't, I mean, they believed that was causal. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're saying this is truth. And so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't doubt that your science is more sophisticated. The question is, 150 years from now, is somebody going to look back and say, well, you know, your science was all very nice, but... So, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of... But, but a big difference is when you have a causative relationship, then you have a chance to actually manipulate the system. If you're an association, then basically the two things are independent from each other. It's just coincidental. So you, are, you, don't have the two, you don't have the opportunity or the chance to actually influence your outcome with, with something which is correlated with so but that's a big difference. Because but they thought the, they did. I mean, they thought they did. Yeah, but it's, a, it's wrong. There are wrong well, things I mean, in science. We don't know that, uh, we don't know that our, our, the, our crude treatments, because they're crude, you know, would match the sensitivity of that kind of science. more precise. This treatment, even in a SSRI, sorry, that's not really causative. We don't call it causative because it's an association. So causative, when you have an absolute uh, known player molecule pathway, which is linked to, and then you manipulate that pathway, and then, then you fix the outcome. So that's what we need for, de for de develop new drugs. Are there uh, any conditions where it has been shown 
specific epigenetic change is responsible for it? So this is, uh, <clears throat> this is another problem. So there's not one single gene or a single locus. But, uh, and that we don't have a manipulation very multiple. So that's very difficult to, to, to make the, uh, but I think that that's actually uh, one way to, to think about it, to figure out a way to work with multiple genes. But I remember when I, I was in school, manipulating one gene was a, a tall order. Nowadays, a uh, uh, grad student will start in the lab and in one month, the person can change that gene, one single gene. We can manipulate maybe three genes. And if you ask the yeast people, yeast, yeast would be just a single cell and a lot of the same cell. They can manipulate thousands at the same time. Mm. What we would need is that to manipulate hundreds of genes or thousands of genes in a complex mammalian uh, neuron. And we just don't have the technology, but people have been working. But in uh, cancer, aren't they using various HDAC inhibitors right now yes. to try to affect the epigenome? Yes, but they are not, we call it selectivity. That's yeah. also not enough. They, they don't have it yet. Yeah, select, selectivity is, is really important that you basically target only those, nothing yeah. else. Exactly. And there's the, the classical manipulation, what we had 20 years ago developed, we don't have to have, we don't have any multiple genes, a lot of genes. Because that's all multi-genes. So, but not only uh, the psychiatric conditions, but cardiovascular, diabetes, uh, hypertension, these are all the same problem. And they cannot really prove because they have tens of hundreds of genes. Yeah. One person has this combination, another person has that combination. Yeah. But we do know that this probably a lot of genes, each has a very small contribution, but you still need they have different uh, constellations. So these are all systems biology. So I think system biology is another field which might need a lot of money. Yeah. But again, much higher level than artificial intelligence would do nobody's, which is one dimensional scale. I want to use this to segue to something that I think is often not seen this way. But the availability of our finer tools for assessing genetic risk at the level even of a, an ovum, means that we're really into uh, a form of uh, euthanasia, except very early. Mm -hmm. So when we decide to not uh, implant a fertilized egg that's carrying the Huntington's gene, mm -hmm. that's just early euthanasia. Early um, eugenics, I'm sorry. Right. Early eugenics. Uh, biologically, it's the same thing. We're clearing the population of a noxious gene by selecting who will support and who will destroy. Uh, the Nazis waited a few decades afterwards before doing the same thing. And we don't really have a dialogue socially about the meaning of that and our attitude toward it. Mm -hmm. We're doing something in a way even more intriguing because the methods for doing this are available to some social classes and not to others. So we've set up a system where if you're in a certain social class, you get eugenics to get rid of bad genes. And if you're in a different class, you don't. And we're going to distribute the bad genes class-wise in, in the culture. That's a very interesting psychiatric, I don't know if it's a psychiatric issue, maybe. I think much of what our effective interventions might be in the next few decades 
maybe uh, at the um, uh, pre-implantation level of eugenics, we can possibly get rid of some major psychiatric disorders if we have enough community acceptance of screening and uh, selective implantation of uh, fertilized ovum that don't carry those disorders. The thing that, that is, I mean, apart from the larger ethical issues, of which there are many, um, the, the other thing that strikes me is if we're trying to help, say, schiz schizophrenia, if we're focusing on schizophrenia, if we're, if we're trying to convince our patients who have schizophrenia that they have lives worth living, that that, that, that disease is not going to define them, that they can live full lives, that they have worth as a human. And then at the same time, we say that we're going to try to eliminate <laughs> the genetic risk for that. You know, what does that say? You know, mm -hmm. we, we care about you, but actually we wish you hadn't been born. I mean, and that, you know, we're not at a stage where we really have to wrestle with that other than as a thought experiment. Um, but that's... We're close to it. Well, depending on who, yeah, depending on who you talk to, you know. Yeah. So just yeah. uh, to totally agree. And then yesterday I just for accidentally opened NIH, National Institute of Health, that there's a whole branch trying to really address this question, so it's very relevant. But I recall another effort from NIH, which is more of a repairing uh, the, the gene or genes. So there are a lot of money goes into outfield, which is basically say, this is a situation, and it's a child is born, but can be really re-established the normal re regulation or whatever situation. And now, just a couple of weeks, the people of you know the new technology where you can actually get in the cell. Again, it's just a cell level. We don't have the brain level. But some, yeah, now some can do it in a single gene, and you can actually repair it. You can elim eliminate the, 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 the physical or, or, or molecular problem, and basically you it's, it's very similar to, to repairing an enzyme defect, for example, with a virus where you would have a child with an enzyme defect. And it's pretty, technically speaking, it's relatively simple because it's just an enzyme which is everywhere. So you make, make a, a white blood cell, and this white blood cell be produced now, and you exchange the deficient okay. cells with the new the gene therapy. So that's a similar concept, except that you go to the uh, brain cell, <coughs> Or a brain region, and then you basically reestablish the normal situation. It's, it's science fiction and it's just collaborative things, but it's certainly in the lab, it's, it's in one gene, it can be done. And it's just five years ago that was the first or four years ago. So there are new things happening. Yeah. And we just need larger, not, not only new things, but we need a scale up from one, it's always with one gene, and then we have to have 100 genes simultaneously. Yeah. So uh, it's going a little slow, obviously. But well, some degree of the repair of genes, the, the, techno the, the, the technology is there now. It's not only a mutation you can repair. You can rip this so-called epigenetic, what I referred, which is, yeah. which is more complex. Yeah. You can repair that as well. But the issue is, in, in terms of mental illness, is to first determine what genes we are talking about. <laughs> sure, sure. If you have a hundred genes of small effect, you can't be fixing those genes. That's, That's not going to make any difference. But the whole idea in science is that you have these hundreds of tracks of research, and some people working with this, and suddenly mm -hmm. everything is just uh, converge, and that's the hope. <laughs> so they, they scale up the technology, the, the brain, and we don't have access to the brain, so we need new technology mm -hmm. to get to the brain. 
So when everything converges maybe 100 years from now, then, then this, is, this is where you say, maybe that was a worse to invest this money, but otherwise we wouldn't be there. And that's the hope. But I think that was a hope in cancer. The thing is, though, that our, we do need to help our patients now. And, you know, sure. it, it isn't sexy, but there is a lot in systems of care that we in psychiatry used to do a lot with. The whole asylum movement, the whole beginning of the, the profession of psychiatry in the United States was based on systems of care. This idea that we build asylums to take care of people, to restore them to sanity. Um, and, and so we have similar problems to what Dorothea Dix was complaining about 170 years ago. We have people in the jails, people on the streets, people who are suffering, who don't have family looking after them. And in Michigan, we are reinventing the idea that we need to take a look at state hospitals. Our, our Republican governors over succeeding decades closed most of our state hospitals, and now all of a sudden we have to have a conversation about maybe reopening some, reopening new new kinds of new systems of care and, and working on, on ways of taking care of people because gene therapy isn't available in our lifetime. Um, it's hard to talk about that. It's hard to yeah. say, yeah, we're, we need bricks and mortar. We don't just yeah. need but genes. I think it's two different things. So we have to yeah. talk about both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that, yeah. you know, the money should come from there. <laughs> I mean, this is more a political issue, actually, but, what you're saying. But for the patient for the next 20 years, neuroscience is probably not going to no. touch them. It's probably not the solution. It's a... Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, um, probably uh, the, uh, all, the, all the astrophysics is not necessarily in our lifetime, but we still pay uh, or, or fund astrophysics or going to the moon or probably we won't be there in the next few years. But still, in some respect, that's, that's how humanity and, and technologies develops. Just to segue into something that might be a little bit more positive. <laughs> so even though I think that neuroscience is going to take 20 years, there are certain things that, and it just happens by sheer coincidence, it's happening in my department, but, <laughs> but in my, at Cornell, um, we have figured, one of the investigators at Cornell, who's a psychiatrist, has figured out a way to use neuroimaging to subtype depression into four categories by the connectome. And he is able to do it, granted it's only one study of 1,200 patients, but he's able to basically get um, to do it with 90% specificity and sensitivity. So he has the shot of actually possibly getting a bi the first biomarker for a psychiatric disorder. And I, what subtypes? Where did the subtypes come from? So what he did was he got 600 patients with major depression and then and four, 300 or so um, uh, control, age match controls, got their resting state scans, which I described theirs, and basically through machine learning slash artificial intelligence asked the computer to tell them, is there, do these people fall into different subtypes? Do the brain connectomes look different from the controls? And then the computer gave what they call a classifier, sort of like, yes, here's a, a template where you, this, this is the template for depression number one, two, three, four. Then he took another set of samples of, of, of 300 um, uh, new people with depression or not depression or schizophrenia, and this classifier could separate out people with schizophrenia versus depression with 99% precision. And so 
So these are these are different subtypes, and I'm dis, DSM yeah. doesn't have. No, they're not phenomenological subtypes. No, they, these okay. were the, the computer was not taught DSM, <laughs> <laughs> so the computer was agnostic to what it was just looking uh -huh. at, at essentially. And each subtype has a slightly different uh, abnormality in connectivity with the prefrontal cortex. So first of all, he can he confirmed that the prefrontal cortex is probably very important for major depression, and they all have slightly different. Well, they don't look different clinically, is the point, right? I guess that was they really don't look that different clinically. Miraculously, the subtypes actually fall into anhedonic, anxious. They actually they fit, do really they yeah. amazingly do, and it was not taught. The computer was not taught this, and so that's that, that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> so that essentially they naturally, which makes sense that if you're anhedonic, then the hub that's involved in the reward circuitry is probably going to be the one that's broken, while the one that's that where you're sort of more anxious. It's going to be probably more prefrontal cortical because of the anxiety circuits related there. So it, it fell out naturally, and now we're going to. But what what is so remarkable is that so there's this other form of treatment called transmagnetic stimulation, which is was which we had wild enthusiasm ten years ago, but has shown to be only effective for forty percent and mild for mild to moderate depression. What he found was was that only one subtype responded optimally to TMS. So now the new clinical trial he's running is to do a, that was a retrospective study that he did. Now he's doing a prospective study to see whether or not he can subtype them ahead of time, then give them TMS and basically see whether or not that this is actually going to hold up. But you can sort of now see how you can use this. Not Obviously, we as psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers, we can diagnose pretty well, but what this can tell you is, is that what he noticed was, was that after the people who responded to TMS, their connectome changed to normal. So basically, you now have not only a diagnostic tool, but something that could probably tell you whether or not the treatments you've had were possibly effective or not effective in changing at least one sort of non, at least some objective measure and stuff. So that the, the future would be at least only at Cornell, but maybe other places, that you would get your, your, your brain scanned in the outpatient clinic if you come in for depression. And then basically, then, then different treatments would be tailored to that. It sounds very... Um, but you mean one brain scan will tell you this? Yes. So basically, because he got the computer to come up with what they call a, a com computational classifier. So then the classifier will then sort of sort it out and just say, this you fit into... Biotype one, two, three, or four, and and so then and and if you put in someone who has schizophrenia, they go, you don't fit into any of these biotypes. You know, you do, you do not, you are not depressed. <laughs> so he's now trying to develop the schizophrenia biotype and the bipolar disorder biotype. But for now, he started with depression. So, but you, but the reason why this was possible was because so many people in this country and, and, and we're doing resting state scans. So he didn't have to scan 1,200 people. He got people's data from 1,200 people, from 1,200 subjects, from, and then just used the computer to basically do the analysis. So I think this is possibly what's going to happen. And that's why it's still important to do all these studies, because who knew that this 10-minute resting state scan was going to be so important for this type of, of work? I think. And, and so the idea is that we could be basically be able to tailor things. But it is really quite remarkable. Even to me, it's 
hard to wrap my mind around the fact that the brain has an intrinsic connectivity that can be picked up in 10 minutes, essentially, right? by a, 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 an MRI machine, essentially, that's been around for 50 years. Right? Essentially, the technology was always there. He only, what he did is he was just like, he just put the pieces together you know, and was able to do this. Yeah. Hmm. So, but replicates. The psychiatry is full of 50 oh, years of starting the DST of tests that look like yeah. they're going to be great. So, mm -hmm. and so two far. replications are now being written up. So the replications okay. for the biotyping. So people from other universities, not us. Really? Excellent. So for depression, not for any other disorder. Well, depression, that would be pretty damn good if you had that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, it's a, we're very, we'll, we'll see what happens. But what's really nice is, is that, and, and, and I, the thing that I got from it was then we've, we've, we've also begun, or he has begun doing um, anxiety disorders, because that's the other major disorder. And 60% of people with anxiety disorders fall into the anxious subtype, which tells us that, again, as you started us off with, DSM, the brain did not read DSM. <laughs> so essentially, there's probably going to be these, going to be these different biotypes for mood disorders. And we're going to have to go back to something called mood disorder and, and not the sort of the that's sort of the Chinese menu list of things you know, that these connectomes are probably going to look very different for each disorder. So you know, we'll see. I, I can assure you that I hope it replicates too. <laughs> but that's an optimistic note, so we can stop there and yeah. open for <laughs> If you have a question, you walk to the. Um, a few years ago, there was a book out called The Half-Life of Facts, and it looked at various fields of science over the years and how many years it took for half the things people thought were true to be no longer thought to be true. So I'm wondering, each of you, how many years will it take for half of what you think is true now to be not true? <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to predict the future, but I will tell you a funny story about that. We, uh, I found a book that was written um, by contributors from the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, which is this grand, very exclusive group of neuroscience researchers that was formed in the 1960s. And in, I think, 1965, they wrote this book called Psychopharmacology in the Year 2000, where they were predicting what was going to be true. And they were convinced this was all going to be true. And they predicted that we would have drugs that would keep people happy in old age by helping them remember things that, that were happy and help them forget things that weren't happy, that we would have drugs that would keep people from being hungry because we weren't going to solve the food problems, but drugs would help with that. And most the thing that they got the most excited about was LSD. They said LSD was the answer to everything. It was going to cure alcoholism. It was going to cure schizophrenia. It was going to it was, gonna, it was the promise for everything. And then two years after this book was published, LSD was banned in the United States. So it, it didn't take long at all. And then as what, a well, you know that, that actually hallucinogens right, well, have well, a What I was going to say, we're back to, we're back to hallucinogens. Now we're back to, we're had looking they not at it, Had they not banned it, maybe over the 30 years we'd actually have drugs <laughs> that were based on it. That was a big mistake. Well, other people, that's a great question, but other <laughs> Well, I think that book proves that trying to predict what's going to be true and not true 
you know, like that. Since I heard you know, something in fifty years, that's the way to write a paper that you can laugh at when it's you, it's that's always a bad idea. To talk. Actually, Tom Insel did something like that. It was really pretty funny. And the other, you know, so Tom Insel was uh, a head of NIMH, and he was writing a paper about the RDoC project. The people, so RDoC project was an attempt to toss out. The DSM approach of phenomenology, and it was actually a neurocircuitry based. Yeah. The idea is we're going to discover the, the circuits of the brain, and then we're going to build up, uh, yeah. you know, this huge uh, all these studies. We're going to explore them, and we're going to develop treatments. And he yeah. went out on a limb and said, in 15 years, uh, and this is a paper written more than 15 years ago, X will happen. It was so off. Yeah. And when, uh, the, the thing that was shocking to me is the foolhardiness of predicting something in 15 years, because those are always wrong. So you can't ever. So you're right. I mean, I assume a lot of what we know is going to be wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Dr. Lee, at the end, you mentioned using ML models um, to differentiate a resting state brain from uh, atypical brains. So these, are in these are in patients. Patients. Yes. Um, and it just made me wonder, what, what is a healthy brain? Operationally, it's someone that doesn't meet any criteria for, for any dis DSM disorder, but you're absolutely are, right. Are there, there people who don't? <laughs> yeah. I'm right there. there the DSM has it. It's, it's sort of a circular argument. But, so I think that what it's very crude. I think we don't have a really good idea of what a healthy brain is. It's just what we call a control brain. So a brain that that lacks these things that we have codified as. as, as a we subject. have an idea of what the healthy mind is. Though, <laughs> The analysts have figured that out. <laughs> Thank you for this very much. And my question is, with some of the ethical questions about which way funding should go, what will be um, the what's the future for involving patients and patients' families in decisions about research priorities and goals, and what values should guide institutional uh, what values should guide academic medicine, and under the current administration, what's the future of PCORI grants? Mm. If, if you know, or any one of those questions. <laughs> so maybe, do you want to explain what a PCORI grant is first? So PCORI, maybe you could say. <laughs> You'll do better. So PCORI grants are supposed to be, so there's been a big sort of, we've cured so many people of depression in an academic medical center with whatever various new thing we've done, then when we try to translate that out into the community, we fail. For example, there's always these new types of psychotherapies or whatever that, that whatever seem to look work re really well when you go to an academic medical center, but they're too complicated or something to be implemented. And so the PCORI grant is supposed to be something where you take a treatment and then disseminate it, and the grant is to actually look at at treatment dissemination in certain ways. For example, uh, I think the types of grants are like if you have a great treatment for um, early adolescency cognitive behavioral therapy that has been validated in an institution, can you then go to the Queens, a Queens clinic, and have trained the people there to do it and stuff, and then get the community to rally around it and, and engage in it and stuff. So lots of money is being poured into these because human studies. And the question is, how for 
given the state of our, as Bob mentioned, sorry state of our current level of treatments, is it worth investing money into the Cori grant? And I would have to say that, uh, that the bigger question is, is that we actually don't, just to sort of segue, we actually don't have the workforce to basically deliver much of the treatments. If 25% of 20% of, of, of our population has an anxiety disorder, sort of the epidemiology. We don't have that workforce. So it's not sure. I'm not actually sure. I would say that it's hard to know. I think what the, the, the rationale for the PCORI grants has been mainly due to the fact that none of the treatments that have more sophisticated behavioral treatments have been able to be implemented into the community. And so the, but it's probably because they don't have enough providers that can deliver it in, in some way. I think. But, yeah. Thank you. I'd like to uh, pick up a thread, that, two threads of Dr. Michaels. Uh, one of them about about prevention uh, and the allocation of of money. Uh, and I'm also you also said something about being provocative, so I'm gonna I'm going to echo that also. Uh, given how we started off with the um, uh, with the absence of progress uh, with the genetic research. Um, Given that, it's striking that we spent most of the time talking about that at this meeting. So what, what does that mean? So I will offer a, an interpretation, considering where, where we are today. And that, and that, and that there's a, a, an enormous cultural, almost delusional denial of, um, of the source of most psych psychopathology, which which Dr. Michaels mentioned, which has something to do with early development, early development, early attachment, traumatic, uh, traumatic abandonment, early childhood. Even, even we know data from moving to another country. The, 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 uh, uh, the correlation between that with immigration and, and mental illness. And yet, there's no money um, uh, being provided for that kind of research. So I suggest we take all of the money, okay, all of the money and use it for prevention programs and studying the neurobiology of attachment. Then we make some progress as far as psychiatric treatment. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, so now I'm taking it back. I wasn't being provocative. I actually believe what I just said. <laughs> uh, the second thing you said was about the, um, the irrelevance of the neuroscience research. Uh, I think it's highly relevant, but in a negative way. Uh, I think you mentioned the, the expectation in the culture, in the scientific community, and amongst patients about being given a pill and everything going away, and therefore they don't need to engage in traditional ways with, with their doctor, with their therapist, to get better. And I think that's rampant in... In, in, uh, in among psychiatrists in particular, and amongst patients, I think so. I think, uh, and that that's all part of the uh, the, the, the destigmatization, the getting rid of stigma. <laughs> I, I don't think we're getting rid of stigma, okay? Because I think uh, in treating patients as if they were broken brains, we we've just added another kind of stigma, okay? Uh, Mort Reiser about three decades ago told a story. Um, it's actually written in a paper. Uh, uh, that um, he found that he, he learned more about a person who was sitting next to him on a bus than he did at case conferences. 
okay, that the presentations at case conferences, psychiatric case conferences, had less details about the people they were talking about than what he gathered on the bus. I think that's even gotten worse. Okay, I think psychiatrists are not engaged even in traditional history taking and interviewing. And speaking of technology, I found that there's a, a strong inverse correlation between psychiatrists who order pharmacogenetic testing and getting history from the patient, getting past records from previous psychiatrists. All that data is, is basically being lost with the promise I agree, I agree. And where the dimensions preserve lots of data, but the dimensions are most complex. So that the committee that was supposed to solve the problem came up with a dimensional system. Then the parent committee worried about it, and extra committees were brought in to review it and decide about it. And we ended up with both systems in the book, one in the major text, one in the appendix revealing the fact that there's not really strong agreement in the profession, but also revealing the fact that the clinicians out in the field have already voted with their feet. They're using categories. Um, how expensive that is, at the moment it's not very expensive, because although the categories lose a lot of data, the data is not relevant to treatment. So it doesn't make any difference if you lose it. If somebody came up with a treatment that was correlated with one of the dimensions, the dimensions would suddenly become very, very popular. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. You agree? Yeah. Next. Thank you. Thank you very much for participating in this. It's been very good to hear everybody's opinions. Um, I, I just, uh, when you guys were referring to the uh, issue um, that I guess I look at as, um, uh, the separation that occurred at the turn of the century um, with Freud versus Jasper, you know, uh, uh, many people don't really, I think, look at it in, in the proper way. I think that um, there was a group of people that were mainly outpatient psychiatrists uh, that were dealing with a population which was you know, Freud saw mostly histrionic and personality disordered individuals, whereas Jaspers and the German uh, philosophical psychiatrists were looking at people who were much, much more profoundly dysfunctional. They were in, in asylums, and those individuals um, had uh, a different uh, depth of illness. Uh, Jaspers, in his treatise, uh, had described the fact that he did not see the, me the value of meaning. And so the biological psychiatrists have continued to seek some type of biological basis for psychiatric uh, disorders, whereas um, the outpatient psychiatrists predominantly were uh, the movement that was looking at personal meaning. What happened is that that conversation or that dispute continued for a century um, and uh, hasn't been completely resolved. But um, it is pretty clear that uh, the first 50 years were predominant, uh, predominantly uh, guided by the meaning-based psychiatrists until uh, psychopharmacology was introduced. And then suddenly there was something that was waking up 
asylum patients, and that was that turned things around for that century. Uh, however, by the end of the century, there was a great deal of disappointment because no biological markers were found, and the treatments um, that had been uh, so profound in their effects in the asylum population were then generalized to the outpatient uh, situation. And one of the biggest um, confusing points is that we talk about these conditions as if they are, you know, like our brethren uh, medical disciplines, these are diseases um, that are a unified uh, uh, event, and that's been one of the leading mis misunderstandings. Because what's happened is that you know seeing a hundred genes should tell you something about the fact that the brain is a dynamical, complex <coughs> system, and one of the things that differentiates psychiatry from a lot of the other medical professions is that there are two um, disciplines that deal with the brain. Neurology, which is much more linear. And, I mean, of course they've expanded because at one point they were having a f uh, freaking out because MRIs could find the lesion. And they thought they were all going to be out of jobs. You know, but it goes to the heart of what the brain, which was initially neurons that were meant for communication, then subsequently became computation. And that represents a hierarchical level of organization that has its own code. So by looking at genes or the answers, that becomes misleading. It's too linear for the majority of psychiatric disorders. Now, of course, if there are psychiatric disorders that are based on genetics, usually those are much, much more profound level of the hierarchical organization of the brain. But many, many disorders are disorders of meaning. And the reason why there hasn't been more um, literature that has been able to prove is because, of course, linear mechanisms are much, much easier to, to prove than nonlinear you know, mechanisms. And so what happens when you, uh, you know, of course, what, there, there is starting to become little moral inklings because at the end of the century, there was the acknowledgement that these, uh, many of these uh, drugs are acting as placebo, which means that they're acting as expectation, patient expectation, and there's been a lot of literature about patient expectation. So now we start to understand that those people may have intact brains, but their, their, their sense of you know, the world is what is making them feel better. Uh, when they take a medication, but can those, we, those, can, those can, can effects don't last. It? Can you come to a closure? Because I have people waiting and we have to stop. <laughs> um, I, there's so much more, but, but <laughs> the bottom line, the bottom line I, you know, I could just do a simple point that the most important things in life are not provable. We believe in order. That's why you guys are scientists. 
you can't prove order. You can't prove love. You can't prove that someone is your friend. But those are the most important things that make life worth living. Those are the things that are of the mind. And even Claude, um, the information theorist, when he said, you know, was the father of information, it's not really about information that he proved. It was just statistical, you know, um, passage of data. Okay. But thanks. not of meaning. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think you made your point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, as a data person myself, I wanted to offer up um, the results from a literature review out of the University of Colorado Denver's School of Medicine. Um, they looked, they did a meta-analysis of all the published studies up until 2012 on antidepressant use versus the use of psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, and what they found was that the effect size and the there were 74 studies on the use of antidepressants alone was 0.3, which means about three standard deviations between the control group and the um, intervention group that received um, antidepressants. And when they looked at studies in pa where, patient, where they had control groups versus patients that had received psychodynamic psychotherapy, the average effect size was 0.97. And they also found that in those studies, patients actually five, 10 years out after therapy, the effect size actually grew larger to upwards of 1.5 to 2. So that, you know, the authors concluded that in their understanding, it seems that there's something about establishing a therapeutic alliance, a, um, a relationship with the patient, a focus on interpersonal relationships, a focus on expressing feelings. When those things are established in the treatment process, patients do seem to do better over time. So personally, as someone who's a prescriber and also an analyst, I struggle figuring out my own approach and, and whether this in, empirical idea of, you know, throw medication at them and see if 30% of them do better, maybe they will, and then you can treat the rest. I don't know. I don't know how those patients are going to do 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, and I feel an ethical responsibility to choose an approach to my care that is, um, you know, going to set as many of them up for success. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thanks. These are placebo-controlled studies. But, like, what is the placebo? And that's a problem, because you're right. People know. know. <laughs> I, I think I read somewhere that they have, they give them something that has some effect. So, at least they know that. It's not, it's not a pure okay. placebo. Maybe okay. it's an antihistamine or something I, that gives them some feeling. It's not the same. I think we'll stop after this. Hi, thank you all. So, uh, there were two contrasts that were brought up. One was between medicine and psychiatry, between the way medic, you know, um, somatic medicine doctors and psychiatrists. And the other uh, contrast was this between um, the diagnosing and getting getting to know patients. And of course, Bob, you, you, um, your, your, your book was from my generation. The way we got to know patients is by reading your, your, you know, your book on the Bible on getting to know patients. But it seems to me that there's kind of been an irony that in, in, in the course of my career as a psychiatrist where I've watched the medicine people get very, very interested in narrative. So now at Columbia, you can get a master's degree in narrative medicine. And the medical students have to take those courses. Right. Right? And I'm sitting around there and saying, narrative medicine? That's psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I think we, we, we abdicated. We abdicated one of our great skills, in a sense. And it's funny to me that we're not the ones teaching narrative medicine uh, to the next generation of medical students. We, so we lost that. Wondering what Bob and others think about that. Thank sure. You. 
there's a almost universal myth that's untrue and is interesting. Freud, of course, was not a psychiatrist. Freud was a neurologist who treated patients who ended up, with, we know the rest of the story. But the um, psychiatry grows out of general medicine, neurology. Neurology wasn't a specialty when Freud was seeing his patients, outpatient with physical symptoms. Um, the uh, history of psychoanalysis has led to its moving away from medicine and away from psychiatry. But in fact, at least in my view, psychoanalytic interview skills and patient recognition are most valuable with non-seriously mentally ill patients. They're more valuable with a patient with ulcerative colitis or bronchial asthma than with a patient with hepaphrenic schizophrenia. But because of the slicing of specialties, it's the psychiatrists who, who are supposed to learn, the, or used to be supposed to learn these techniques, although the inpatient, seriously mentally ill populations, the major psychiatric illnesses, autism, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, when psychotic, are probably least relevant for those tools of uh, interpersonal uh, contact, knowledge, and getting to know people. They're much more important for the psychiatrically healthier, but seriously stressed, physically ill, or less psychotic, mentally ill patient. So we have this sort of interesting paradox, but the sociology of the field works against rationality in that area. <laughs> you know, I, I, will, I would actually disagree about the, the interpersonal stuff on an inpatient setting. So I, I run an inpatient unit at the University of Michigan. And yeah, we're not, we're not doing the in-depth, you know, let's talk about your mother kinds of conversations. But Don't forget the father. <laughs> but we have to understand where the patients are coming from, and we also need to know their stories. And so, so a patient doesn't wind up at the hospital because he's schizophrenic. He winds up at the hospital because his mother died, he's out on the street, he's not taking his meds anymore, and he's got nobody to look after him. So there's a story there that we have to know. And so that's what I, what I teach my trainees is to try to elicit the story. And it's funny, in, at uh, University of Michigan, we have, we have reinvented a medical humanities program, and three quarters of the faculty are psychiatrists because we, we say, yeah, this is this is our stuff. We need to reclaim it. <laughs> okay, so this is the last question. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jonathan Kaplan. I'm a fourth year medical student applying for psychiatry. Uh, so very interested in this talk, and I really thank you all for being here today. Uh, so my question. When I envision the future and understanding all the neuroscience we're talking about, immunology and more target therapies, nanobots, hallucinogens, uh, all the neurostimulation, but for what I'm hearing from, from this is the future of psychiatry sounds more like reallocating resources, delivering care, kind of the social aspect. So is my future psychiatrist, are we <laughs> going to see more of the acceleration of kind of the fancy new therapies and modalities? Or should we really be advocating for spending the money where it's going to be most impactful, things like housing or uh, the early child interventions? So in five years after you finish your residency, you will only see the most ill patients. So, and then at some point, so that 
most of the other mild to moderate will hopefully be taken care of by primary care or some other. So you will at some point realize that the treatments that your armamentarian you have is limited. Then you will go, I heard this talk about psilocybin. I, I've got to do something for my patient. This is why I think there's such, such great interest because we have a limited repertoire of what we can offer our very, very ill patients. And uh, we have ex ECT is very effective, but no one wants to do polyb to be someone that will only be seeing very ill patients and be prepared to know what your plan B will be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we will stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.